0: Welcome to episode 14 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. Before we dive in, I just want to mention a training opportunity that might interest you. It's a 2019 Canadian high-rise conference in Niagara Falls, scheduled for May 20th, 21st, and 22nd. It's a two-day event containing both in-class learning and hands-on training, sponsored by Firestar Services, Inc., m and Supply, Alcart Brass, 3M Scott, Bullard, All-American Hose, Pierce, and the Hogtown Fools. Registration is $4.50 per person plus HST and includes a buffet breakfast and lunch on both days. The deadline's April 21st, 2019, and it's limited to 100 people based on a first-come-first-served system. Get in and check it out if you can. It'll be valuable for you and your department. Now, if you've listened to Jordan Peterson at all or read his book, 12 Rules for Life, his core driver is to inspire people to stand up tall with their back straight and shoulders back and to clean up their own room and themselves before they try and change the world, to take ownership of who they are in their family, community, and society, and live a purposeful and valuable life. My guest, this episode echoes that sentiment and intention in words and in action we talk about having a personal ethos a grounding rod and people around us to help keep us on track he discovered this tenant through trial and tribulation guidance and perseverance eventually finding the fire service and applying it as a firefighter and a captain within the union health and safety and peer support and now as a deputy chief is it possible for the right people to ascend the ranks learn and evolve yet value and maintain their roots in my opinion you're going to get to listen to someone who is doing it as well as it can be done. It's my privilege to bring you Rob Martin. Hey, Rob. How's it going? It's going well. Good. Thanks for coming here to do this.
1: It's a pleasure, and quite uh, honestly, it's an honor. I've awesome. seen the list of people you've had as guests. Um, I'm quite humbled to be asked.
0: First thing that jumped out to me in the information you sent me was that you mentioned that you grew up in a really sports-driven household. Was your whole family athletic? I have three brothers.
1: I'm the oldest of three, or two brothers, I guess. I'm the oldest of three boys. My mother was very much involved in sports. Uh, She played hockey actually while she was pregnant with me. She was still playing hockey. Uh, I think it was before there's you know Team Canada, Team Ontario, that kind of stuff. But she was definitely playing at a high level. And then you know her love of that sport flowed over into having me on skates by two, and then my brothers. So we we were definitely an athletic household um, not just with hockey but we took up lacrosse soccer baseball all the different sports knowing now kind of what everything costs I'm surprised that they were able to make it all work and certainly knowing how much running around there is and travel it's pretty impressive all the different things that they managed to get us involved in
0: yeah there's always that balance you're trying to achieve yeah with keeping the kids out of trouble and letting them learn lessons from sports but yeah not over schedule them and run them down
1: yeah, they definitely didn't have balance on that part of it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you still made it OK. Yeah, I've we, we survived, and, we, and my brothers survived.
1: I think that uh, in terms of balance, one of the things I love about uh, what my brothers are doing with their younger ones is sort of adding in some of the musical pieces or other aspects that aren't just sports-oriented. Well, what competitive sports did you play? Uh, hockey, lacrosse. Those are the primary ones. I dabbled in high school football. Certainly not good at it because, you know, I started in grade nine, but I was an amazing bench warmer and support on the sidelines.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Did you have any innate abilities in hockey and lacrosse? Did things come naturally on that end?
1: You know, it's um, all I knew. So, I I mean, I started skating at two and certainly playing hockey by, uh, I think it was four when I was, you know, in an organized league not a lot of memory actually in terms of anything but that so I don't know that I'd call it innate or if it was you know my environment just sort of set me up to have the skill sets that were there we used to shoot uh, hockey pucks at old tvs until we broke them you know and it wasn't a matter of you know we were tired or whatever it was like mom wanted you to shoot 100 pucks today did you shoot your 100 pucks today if you didn't shoot your 100 pucks you better go outside and shoot your 100 pucks And so it's that kind of uh, environment.
0: I don't know that it, uh, an innate ability was mm-hmm. there, but. Yeah, skating and handling a puck is definitely something you need to learn from infancy. Like, <laughs> I tried to learn it as an adult, and it's incredibly difficult.
1: Uh, much like a guitar, right, or or a musical instrument. Right. I think if you grow up with um, having that dexterity or that muscle memory that you've, mm-hmm. you know, you've created. The patterns are there. And certainly if you were to hand me one of the guitars that are on the wall over there, I would show you how, uh, how you know a hockey
0: puck and handling uh, a hockey puck has nothing to do with uh, the... Nature called all those uh, neural pathways early on. We obviously don't need these, just get no, them out of the way. That's right.
1: Yeah, I can't draw. I can't do anything
0: artsy. Do any uh, specific coaches or teammates, training days or games, do they stand out for you?
1: I would say probably my first coach is one that stands out the most. And all coaches, to be honest with you, anybody who's willing to give up their own time to nurture the youth and give them guidance. Uh, there are so many different people that you know provided me with you know, mentorship or truly setting me aside saying, hey you know what about trying this? What about trying that and just kind of coaching whether it be skill level or whether it be you know an attitude or whether it be the team play aspect. Jim Raycraft was my first coach, an exceptional human being. And, you know, they say everything you need to know you learned in kindergarten. I think everything I need to know I learned in novice hockey from a real gentleman, from somebody who actually understood emotional intelligence as well as, you know, the game of hockey. So quite fortunate.
0: How did you process uh, wins and losses and challenges initially, and how did he then influence that?
1: It's interesting. uh, Wins and losses were weren't really seen as wins and losses. It was just, we're here as a team. We're going to play as a team. We're going to do everything we can. We're going to try hard. You know, it was about effort, not really outcome. And he emphasized a lot of times that a win, you know, that we did, but we weren't really, didn't try hard. Wasn't as important. And I mean, it's funny cause you know, I think I was four, five, six, seven years old at that time. I don't know many other memories except for being at the arena. And being in dressing rooms and kind of hearing his little rah-rah speeches or the the after-the-game chats, you know, I would say that understanding the application of effort is the goal, is where you should be focusing, and then uh, the outcomes will come. If you continue to put your effort in, eventually what you're trying to achieve,
0: you'll get there. And what about shaping your moral values and your compass? Certainly that was
1: the initial, having that kind of feedback and then having feedback from watching my parents. Understanding my moral compass, like even that language came far, far later. When you look back and go, why do I think the way I think? Or why is this matter to me versus that? With Jim, he was somebody who focused on effort, focused on team. We all mattered. I mean, when you think about right now in, in the fire service, when we're talking about inclusivity and diversity, it didn't matter who on the team was doing what. Everybody had a role to play. We all mattered. And. It was the success of the team came together or the loss of the team. We all shared it together, right? And I've heard you say before, um, I I think it's your quote, so I'm going to give you credit for it. (laughs) I'll take it. (laughs) Is that pain shared is, is pain divided. I stole that one, but yeah, I'll take it. Oh yeah, okay. Um, And to be honest with you, I think in terms of success, it's actually success is multiplied, right? Like when we share that, we spread it. We don't lose any of it ourselves. So those are the sort of things that I think got instilled in me you know, in the novice hockey. And then you keep with you as you move through in team sports, whether you move to lacrosse or, or whatnot. I think it was... That team environment, that understanding that, you know, there's something more important than self. You see a lot of the players, you know, they'll touch the front of their jersey because what's on the front is more important than the name on the back. Those are lessons that were taught very, very early
0: on. So, I hadn't really thought about it until you mentioned it, but it's interesting now socially that in Western civilization, we're more on the individual than we are on the collective. Mm-hmm. But now it seems for people to feel like they matter, every single thing about them as an individual needs to be applauded and nothing can be criticized. Uh, whereas the collective, this team environment you know, that we're talking about, you said we all knew we mattered. Mm-hmm. So it is possible in, in a tribe that you can still feel like you matter. You don't need to be held up on a pedestal all the time as an individual to feel like you're important. I don't think the entitlement necessarily then comes along with that. Whereas if you push too far the individual and and lose the tribe, that uh, sense of entitlement can set in. Something that I think is
1: really important for us as a fire service is to understand that we are a community or we are a tribe and there's safety in that, right? If you think about the fact that when we bring on a new class and we put them through their paces and we test them, you know, we're really trying to give them that rite of passage into our community or into our group. And that provides us with, I guess, trust that they have what it takes, but we have to do that in a very honest and authentic way. The intention of that has to be very... Clear. Uh, they have to understand that we are here to get you through this rite of passage, but it is truly, you have to join us. And then once they're on, we have to make sure that, regardless of our uh, flaws, so understanding the fact that we are working together for a greater good, uh, we all bring that to the table. And that's our intention or our mission. Everybody has a mission statement for their department, but truly, we're there to serve, right? If we get that you know, right. That circle is safe, you know, and, you know, not to steal from Simon Sinek, but he uses that circle of safety and he talks about that, right. It's animal instinct. And we, you know,
0: we ignore it a lot. I think. I was just talking to a couple of guys at the station last night about what can we do? What do we need back? Mm-hmm. What's slipping? And, uh, we came up with expectations, accountability, consequences, and then consistency. If we don't set the expectations, then you can't hold them accountable. And, there needs to be some kind of consequences. You can't just sweep everything under the rug. And then if you're not consistent, where one person gets the discipline and the other person doesn't, then there's opportunities all along the way to lose that.
1: In setting the expectations, I think we should start a couple rungs lower on that pyramid in terms of what we're building and look at uh, a personal ethos. So one of the things that we've instituted um, since I took on my role with every recruit class, I meet with them and I ask them a question, and that is, "What's your personal ethos?" And sometimes they look at me like I'm crazy and they don't know what I mean. And sometimes they, you know, they've done a little bit of reading or, or whatnot, and they they can sort of grasp that. But the rationale, you know, boiling it down, is, "What kind of firefighter do you want to be? What kind of man or woman do you want to be? What kind of wife or husband or mom or dad?" You know, the the fire service is really, well, first responders in general, but the fire service is really hard on our souls. If we don't have a grounding rod or a, maybe a moral compass, but we actually have to have somewhere where we know who we were. And so in the first week or so, I like to ask that question because, you know, we haven't really put any kind of exposures onto them. So it's like, who do you want to be as a human being? Write that down. I've had the honor the last few graduations to do the wrap up speech, go forth and set the world on fire. Probably not the best commencement uh, quote (laughs) to text for fire recruits, but I usually lead with that because it gets a chuckle. And then I drop into something a little bit deeper and I say to the the families, we have asked all of your loved ones as they've joined our family to think about who they are, who they want to be. We're all always evolving. So there's hopefully a plan on who they want to become too. And then I advise them that, you know, unfortunately, there's going to be times where they're going to change. They're going to adjust. You're going to be the first ones to know. All you really need to do is when you're talking with them is to ask them where their personal ethos is or remind them to read it. Because I think if we're in that mindset where we're hurt, we're not going to be able to come back to that thought. Not on our own. If we've written it down earlier, And then somebody brings, you know, that point to us, we'll be able to go back to it and say, when I first started, this is my intention. This is who I wanted to be. And and certainly, you know, we're going to grow and adapt and might be something that we review on a regular basis. You know, that would be maybe, you know, 2.0 of what we're working on, but they'd have the opportunity to reflect on that. Like I think reflection on whatever role we're in. Is really important. I do it weekly. I have daily meditations, but uh, I spend a fair bit of time on Sunday morning reflecting on my week. For me, it's a lot easier to make smaller adjustments than six months down the road or, or a year down the road. Somebody to say, "Hey, you're an asshole," and you know. And I literally, when I made the move over, I've asked a few of my closest friends from, you know, in the suppression division to say. Um, keep an eye on me because I want to stay who I am. I want to stay who I believe I should be. Um, So if you start to see that slide, you know, you just have to say, hey, you're being an asshole. That's our code word, by the way. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, and fortunately they haven't had to say that yet, but they have dropped in and said, you know, like, what are your thoughts on this? Because you you made a decision here. Give me the rationale for that. And when I say it out loud to them, you know, oftentimes I'll go, yeah, okay, I'm going to. I'm going to reverse on that because <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, because it's one of those things where you literally, you know, people like you've been in some good fires, right? You know, uh, that bond that's created. And so when they look into you and the question gets asked and you're like, uh, oh, shit, I got that wrong. That ability to reflect on it on a regular basis is what allows me to do that. I think.
0: And then you're staying true to your trust in them. And then that then builds trust. Right. In them with you.
1: Yeah. Hopefully they feel that they're able to come forward and do that. Telling the emperor he has no clothes, right?
0: Mm-hmm. I'd rather not be out in the street
1: naked. If yeah. somebody, you know,
0: like, <laughs> give me the shout. And mentioning it to ourselves or to each other early on, it's tough, right? Because these changes might be incremental. They may be hard to hear, hard to see. You really mm-hmm. have to be paying attention. So the fact that you do that every Sunday morning or you've asked other people to pay attention, someone's always looking. Mm-hmm. No, well, they're it, always looking. I've just asked them to say it to me too. Yeah, <laughs> and, but but with good intention, absolutely, not yeah. looking to c- call you out. So right. days and weeks and months go by. You're right, and when they become easy to hear and see, mm-hmm. yeah, that's harder to go back. What was your first job? How old were you, and what jobs did you have before the fire service?
1: Uh, I so my first job was with my dad. My dad had an auto body business. I'm gonna say right around six. I think uh, he had me there counting sandpaper and uh, inventorying them into different grits. He was a small business owner. I got to be there pretty much all my spare time. I got to you know, use torches at a young age. I got to play with all kinds of different things. So he worked you know, at least 12 hours a day, seven days a week. But I didn't really see it as the work. And I hope he, if he's listening to this, he doesn't you know, <laughs> question that. But he, it certainly was work for him, but I got to be there. So it never felt like, you know, he was always gone. It was one of those things where you could kind of be there. And
0: for me, it was just life. You're connected to what's going on, not he leaves the door and comes in the door. Yeah. And quite honestly, I learned a ton there in terms of first jobs. You know,
1: you pick up a lot when you're six. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Funny enough, though, for him... I don't think he had any intention of me taking over the family business. I was there for 10 years. I was 16, and my recollection of exactly where I made this statement is a little bit off. Like, I can't remember exactly who I said it to, but somebody had asked me what I was going to do when I grew up. And I made the statement, well, I'm probably out of body. I'm probably going to work with my dad and then, you know, eventually own the business or whatever run the business for him. And then that weekend, you know, I went to work and he fired me. Wow. Nicely. He just said, I think you should find another job. Did you suck or? (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, the only job I've ever been fired from, and obviously I, um, at the time, didn't know the lesson, but he had no intention of me following in his footsteps. Hmm. Interesting. I'm putting words in his mouth. We've never really had that conversation, Um, but I think, you know, knowing him and knowing kind of, you know, his subtle ways of influencing me, that he uh, wanted me to to strive for something different, which he certainly uh, set me on the right path.
0: What was your first exposure to the fire service? At the auto body garage. Um,
1: and again, my uh, my memory's not exactly sure if it was when I was seven or eight, but he uh, had a fairly large explosion while I was there. He was working on, back then gas tanks were metal and they used to be repaired and there was a the whole system for how you did that. And something obviously went wrong caused a a really large explosion and everything got kicked over towards the paint booth and all of the stuff that was there. But he he was injured quite bad. The one uh, other auto body guy that was working for him dragged him out onto the front tarmac. Before I knew it, there was a bunch of fire trucks on scene. Quite honestly, I was just floored that all these people would just come out of nowhere and risk their lives. Like they were doing all kinds of different things what we know we do now but at the time uh it was one of those things where I was just stunned that people would do that I mean it was a small town so I can't say it's for somebody they didn't even know because everybody knew everybody but certainly from my perspective it was one of those impactful moments where you go wow these guys are awesome
0: and you had some insight into your dad's personality because he was laying there injured and you mentioned to me about what his concerns were at the time.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, when you're a kid, you don't really think, you know, your dad gives you an order, you just go do it. Right. Well, at least back in the day you did that. I don't (laughs) know if that's his focus was on where the hazards were inside that building or where, you know, we had a, it was propane heated. So there's a big propane tank out the back and he wanted to make sure that they were aware of that. He wanted them to know where, you know, the five gallon things of thinners were and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So he was giving me direction and I was walking up to the guy in the white helmet, right. And passing on information at seven, I'm relaying information back and forth. And now I kind of look at that and think you, you know, have a big gaping, wound in your, your forehead, your forehead is split basically from the, the center of your skull down to your eyebrow, blading all over the place. You weren't conscious for a while. Now you're conscious and your first thoughts are somebody else. Right. Yeah, and to be honest with you, like even thinking about that now is one of those emotional moments where you kind of go, what an amazing guy. Right. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So I think from a resilience standpoint, I learned a lot that day I just didn't know I did until much later. I didn't see any moment where he felt he was a victim, where he um, had that victim mindset. It moved right away into rebuilding and becoming the survivor. Those are words I put around it at this point. But I think, you know, like back then I look at that thing, well, wow, there's an amazing lesson that I, I got at that point because victim rarely comes into my mind, right? And I think it's from that.
0: Was it a traumatic experience though for you at the same time? Mm,
1: I don't I don't think so, but I don't want to dismiss you know like I think there's a lot of times that we experience things and we just have a good ability of, of putting them into their little boxes.
0: I mean it was a different time too like did you undergo counseling for that? How was that aspect handled? Was there a discussion about it? 'cause I think it would just be handled differently today than it would have been when we were kids. Whether that's right or wrong, there's no judgment on it. I just, yeah. just want to frame the difference.
1: Yeah, certainly there was no I no counseling. And I wouldn't say that there was any discussion that I recall. Probably the hardest part was going to see him in the hospital, right? Because, you know, it's it's one thing to see him right after that event and kind of see how things go. But then he's up talking and giving me orders, like telling me what to do, which is you know, everything's back to normal. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> Except for that big uh, hole. Um, anyway, uh, the, the hospital experience was probably something that stood with me or stayed with me for a bit. There was no discussion around it. But I think from our perspective, and certainly I, I agree with you, no judgment on all of that. And no judgment on the fact that we do defer to counseling uh, quite early now. But I think his example was my counseling right? Like it was that we're getting back to normal. We're just going to move from this to this and we're going to move on. And um, we can't discount that. No, I, th- I think that it's a fine line when we talk about that phrase, suck it up. I think it's important for us to understand that we have an immense amount of resilience built in every human being. And there are times when we need to tap into it. And then there's times when we need to take a knee. That awareness is I wish I had, you know, clarity on when that time is. For each person. Yeah. For everybody, it's going to be different. And every, you know, experience is going to be different. But I think there's a certain amount of strength that comes from being tested, failing, and then stepping back into the ring or stepping back up and, and taking that challenge again. And you build on that experience. It, it is a form of suck it up. Right. And uh, I think it's important to understand that we can't just go down the path of every time we have something happen to us, we take a knee without picking on soccer players. But we could look at the difference between, you know, a hockey player like Gregory Campbell comes to mind, slap shot in the leg, breaks his leg, stays on the ice because he doesn't want to leave his team shorthanded. You know, you see him in major pain and then he skates off to the bench, you know, when the puck goes the other end are you kidding me?
0: Right. Yeah. It comes
1: back and he's like, Oh yeah, his leg's broke. That kind of resilience. And that comes from knowing there's something more important than you, Mm -hmm. right? That there's that team, right? That's that loyalty to team. The, The team has become personal, right? We have a huge advantage in the fire service compared to other first responders in the fact that we have that team, the fact that we have a bond, you know, and we have a kitchen table and we have ways of, dealing with things and coming back in the team, it's a team focused or it's that unity focus, that tribe focus that we can draw on and we share our pain. And sometimes it's in very, you know, gory graphic, maybe misunderstood ways, but we still do it versus other first responders. You know, when I think about a police officer who has to go to the same scenes that we would arrive at and deal with things. And then when we are leaving, they may end up having to stay with the body and sit there alone. Mm-hmm and then write it out in their notebooks, all the details. And they don't have anybody to talk about that with when they aren't going back to their cruiser and joking with their buddies. They're going back to their cruiser alone and going off to the next call after. If we don't take advantage of that extra piece that we have, we might as well not have it.
0: You need to acknowledge it and be grateful for it. Yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. Do you think suck it up is sort of a pop culture carryover from the deeper, truer sense of stoicism? There's a lot of benefits from stoicism. Mm -hmm, For sure. And to say there's benefits from it doesn't mean it's the only way to approach every situation. But the intent of suck it up, that's where that came from, but it misses the mark.
1: Yeah, so I'm glad you said that because I I don't know if I want to say it's a carryover because carryover means that it was properly applied in the first place. Or it's like a distant echo where you don't get the entire story. It's a catchphrase. I think it's a misunderstood piece. It is improperly applied. If you look at stoicism and converting that over to you know somewhat of a more uh, recent, like from a psychological standpoint, it's emotional regulation. Understanding yourself. So know thyself. Back to that personal ethos. Who am I? Who do I want to be? And then you have the incident or the trauma or the whatever that's going on in life and you get to choose your response. And I think that that's where emotional regulation is applied. And if the proper response is take a knee, to be honest, like if I was telling Gregory Campbell, dude, take a knee, you just broke your leg and it's a hockey game. No lives are at risk. And you have to just admire the courage that's done in that moment. And you're kind of like, wow, like that's so impressive. I would say that Stoicism, emotional regulation, if applied correctly, is about witnessing the event, having that second of pause or that moment to be able to say, what's going on right now? How do I want to be present? How do I want to appear and respond to this? And then following through with that and not being reactive to it. Because quite honestly, there are going to be times when you need to to ask for help. And there's going to be times when you need to tough it out. That's a decision that only you can make. It. You can't make it if you haven't pounded a grounding rod in to say who I am. And in every situation, it's it's going to be different. But who you want to be and who you are, isn't like that's the part that you know. If you've done that without going woo woo, but if you've done some of that internal work to really determine what kind of person you are, you'll know the answer. And it really then just becomes a practice of the pause. You'd be able to pause in that moment and apply the appropriate mm-hmm. response.
0: Touching back on those firefighters showing up and helping your dad and it really imprinting on you how much these people cared. Do you think we're trending away in the fire service from caring being the primary reason people enter?
1: Um, I have the privilege right now of being on the hiring panel and we're currently going through a process. We typically get somewhere around 470 to 520 applications for five to 10 positions. Pretty good ratio. I would say that there are probably some people that are applying for the wrong reasons. Maybe wrong isn't a proper choice. They're coming at it from a point of view of a secure job, establishing benefits and pension and the basic needs of Maslow's hierarchy needs, right? They're kind of saying, you know, I need to get a secure spot for myself and my family. And when I say wrong, I think that you can come into any job with that as your goal. And in most of the time, You can be successful because you'll find some other external drivers that will continue to motivate you or they'll continue to excite you and challenge you in ways so you'll grow. In the fire service, you have to have that extra piece that you truly want to serve, that you want to do the right thing at the right time for all people. If you don't have that, you're going to be challenged in this career and it won't be worth it you won't be able to get that kind of growth experience. The incentives won't be there to continue to do and drive through because, like I said earlier in this, there's going to be times where you're going to feel broken. There's are going to be times when you have to do that self-reflection of who am I, who I want to be. And if you have come into the career for that stability only, of a good-paying job and benefits, you'll look at it and think, "Well, oh, that trade-off really isn't worth it we can talk cancer, we can talk OSIs, we can talk PTSD. All of those things are chipping away at your soul. And, you know, I truly think we got to do stuff on a regular basis to mitigate that. And if you don't have that internal driver, that spark. To be honest with you, I still don't really see a lot of people making it through the process that don't have that. It's so obvious
0: in interviews. I was going to say it must be hard because you're hearing the same thing from everybody. But I guess if you've been in it long enough and you're self-aware enough, you can see it. That's interesting to me. Yeah, well, that could be totally full of shit. Quite honestly, I think it's really easy to see. So I don't
1: want to dismiss the fact or make assumptions that I'm getting it right all the time. But one of the things that we do uh, in our department is we have a panel. So it's a representation from... Somebody who's in the increment process, so they're not quite a first class. We have representation from first class. We have representation from the officer level. Hmm. And then a union representative from the executive is is also present on the panel. So they're helping select, right? So everybody's got a bullshit meter. Mm -hmm. I like that. The other deputy and myself sit on that panel as well as um, we have uh, an assistant chief who's got an HR background who has probably the best bullshit meter out of all of us. And you're right, we do hear a lot of the same things from the rhetoric right, yeah. yeah but you only have to go one or two questions deep in that you know i'm sure you've heard of the five whys i forget the guy's first name but the, the guy who originated toyota he has that five whys why are we doing this you know and then you answer it and then well why are you doing that right. and then you answer it and you keep
0: so so really five-year-olds are right when they're asking you
1: questions oh god yeah i mean <laughs> they understand the the intricacies of life for sure we mess them up for you know, right <laughs> yeah <laughs> um So you only have to go a couple of whys deep in the question for them to actually not know the answer. And when they don't, you find out it's somewhat superficial. Or when you ask why you get like somebody who really knows themselves, it's in the first time when you ask it, they give you a why that blows you away. Right. Right. And you go, oh. Yeah. We'll be here for an hour
0: if I ask you another why. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. (laughs) So I think that's why I say it is uh, easy to tell is if there's one person in the room who goes, yeah, I don't know. I call bullshit. We don't move on, right? Right.
0: Really, it's not wrong to want those things for yourself or for your family. It's only wrong if that's your only driver.
1: Yeah, you said that a lot better than I did. Well, yeah. but I, <laughs> well done. But I get, I get to hear it all from you and then filter
0: <laughs> it and then re- repackage it. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, I think they need to have more than just that reason. Not only to be a great firefighter, but to survive it. I think it's important that you have that internal drive.
0: I also find it kind of ironic that if you're getting into the job for a selfish reason, yes, you mentioned on the negative end of the things we face with PTSD and OSIs Mm -hmm. and cancer and such, but you're also missing out on the joyous experience you can have. You're really missing the experience. Mm -hmm. There is a true personal experience you can have through this career. And if you come in with a selfish reason, you don't get to have that. You're not going to get there. Absolutely. I think that
1: that's a really good point. We talked about acknowledging the kitchen table or acknowledging that bond. If You're not making use of it. You're missing out in a big way, for sure. You know, I have two brothers who I love dearly. Uh, We got great bonds, but I also have a huge fire family. And even on family day. I take a moment to actually acknowledge that fire family. Like there's been some amazing guidance that's come through that. I am not who I am today without any of those people, right? And that can be the person, it might be the crustiest, saltiest person on the job who's constantly cutting you down out of love, of course, but, you know, is going through that process of, you know, when you make a mistake, they're happy to point it out, but they're also that person that you know when you do take a knee, they're the first one there to wrap their arm around you and lift you back up and say, "I got you, man. Like, good job." What
0: choices did you make as a young man that were opportunities for you to learn valuable lessons? <laughs>
1: you mean what bad choices? obviously, just, just, just yeah, choices—there's yeah.
0: good ones and bad ones. We learn uh, from both of them. So,
1: um, I find I learn from bad choices so much better, <laughs>
0: um, or quicker. I'm not sure.
1: Um, at the age of 16, I was looking for a new job. <laughs> um, Thrust and, back into the workplace market, yeah, there. yeah, and um, started to install pools, doing some construction stuff. And um, lo and behold, there are, apparently are firefighters who do that kind of work. Yeah, I've done it too. <laughs> <laughs> so I got in with a, a group, a firefighter who had guys that he was working with, and those guys were amazing in terms of a good choice, I had an opportunity to work with them and think that's that point where the decision in my mind was made. I had originally obviously saw some really great firefighters do amazing work for my dad and, you know, at that fire. And then at 16, you know, 17, I'm working with these guys and they are a ball of laughs, right? Like we're working hard digging and slugging concrete, doing all that stuff, but there's not one moment that isn't fun. And uh, for me, it really felt like the dressing room at a game. There was lots of shit chucking. There's lots of You recognized it early. Yeah. Essentially, there's no chance I'm making it a pro hockey and to be in that dressing room to get paid for it. But there's another option. I can hang out with you guys. So for me, that was sort of a a pivoting point. I knew kind of what I wanted to do and then started on that path to say, hey, what do I need to do to get there? And everybody kept saying at the time, go get a trade, right? Go become an electrician, a plumber or whatever. Uh, So I had started down that journey to become an electrician. That's one of the better choices that I made. I also made some not so smart choices. I met a girl, I got married early, you know, she got pregnant, you know, I have an amazing son from it. So there's no regrets. Everything that I did through that, I should preface this with the fact that I learned so much through that. And at the time, you're, you know, the divorce, the, you know, all that kind of stuff is painful. And I wouldn't recommend anybody at 21 go and become a dad, you know, saying, Hey, this is a really easy pathway. It certainly wasn't, but the lessons that I learned, the life choices I had to make, and the focus that I had to have really got me lined up for who I am now and where I am in my life because if I was to just do whatever I wanted in my 20s, not to say that that's a bad thing because you you have your, your children when you're a little older, there's a lot of things that I had accomplished by the time my friends were actually starting to have kids and my son was 10 and I'd kind of gone through all of those process. And now I'm in my forties. My son is growing up. He's got a job. He's moving on. I have some friends who are in their forties and their wives are expecting, right? So it's like, wow, oh, you got some heart. You got another 20 years <laughs> right. of some interesting, I mean, and those are joyous years for them too, sure. for sure. But
0: um, just a different piece around that. You mentioned broken bones and workplace accidents as well.
1: Oh yeah, I forgot I mentioned that. <laughs> so I, yeah, uh, broken bones, I, you know, those were obviously not necessarily choices, but the acts that I was doing beforehand were choices. And so I would say understanding decision and consequence, those lessons were taught pretty early. So, you know, I think I can make that jump on a dirt bike. Oh, no, can't. Workplace accident. I was going through the electrical trade or I guess at the time it was a refrigeration trade, uh, made a choice to use a ladder that was at a, a factory that I was working at rather than the one that was on the roof of the van that my employer supplied me. And it ended up having a workplace accident. Where I broke my hip and both wrists and kind of went through some rehab requirements, time off work, that kind of stuff. And so, other than the embarrassment of hurting yourself at work, it was a delay in my forward momentum. Like, so we would just get to a certain point. Of, okay, i got a job doing this, moving on, getting my trade, doing whatever. Oh, now you got three months off. I just kept um, kind of getting in the way. There was a moment or a time where I was like, I don't know why this stuff keeps happening to me. And actually somebody had asked it to me out loud at a family event. And when it got asked out loud, it was one of those moments where you kind of go, uh, uh, yeah, oh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I know why this is happening to me now because I'm choosing it. I'm making these choices. That acknowledgement, that sort of recognition, I think, then gave me the power to say, okay, if this, then that. I'm not somebody who really worries. I kind of think worry is a wasted emotion. But I will, if this, then that, all the different scenarios so that I know what I'm going to do if this happens. And I know what I'm going to do if that happens and kind of go through that process. Mm -hmm. And that practice came about because I wanted to try new things. I wanted to do a whole bunch of stuff, right? And whether it be dirt biking or whether it be you know, playing hockey, whatever. whatever. I wanted to try all these different things, but I had to think about all the consequences and what's the worst that could happen here? This could happen. Okay. So what if I do this instead? Right now I can look back and go, oh, I learned that then. But at the time you don't really know you're learning it, right? You're just kind of applying certain things and in a random way. And I think as we age, we start to realize, you know, it's just like in business. There's a bunch of different business models. And if you don't apply them at the right time, they don't work. Mm -hmm. If you don't, know the model you can't repeat it so it's important to kind of know both right you have to have the timing right you also have to understand the structure and the model that you're using same with the decision making process for me I didn't have the timing right for a while and then for the longest time I really didn't understand what I was doing but now I feel like I've got both but it was because of those lessons.
0: Had you experienced physical setbacks in sports before the workplace stuff?
1: Yeah you know I think I was 12 or 13 I broke my arm playing hockey. Just to tell you how competitive my mom is. Sorry, mom, I'm going to tell a story. I broke my arm. I believe it was the second period. She was coaching. She had me sit on the end of the bench and wait till the end of the game because, you know, that's what a good team player does. And then it was funny because she was telling me it wasn't broken. I think because she wanted to try and alleviate any fear. But As a 12-year-old, you know what your arm's supposed to look like, and you would've seen a broken arm when it's both, right? It was clearly not, right? So it's like, okay, she's clearly lying to me at this moment. But a good team player stays on the bench, and we'll do what we have to do, yeah. (laughs) So I had a few setbacks, but it would be more my hobbies or, or workplaces that kind of set me back.
0: And how does this influence, then, how you're dialoguing with people on the job that have workplace injuries or have setbacks,
1: I do when it's something more substantial, like I've had some good heart-to-hearts about the lessons that we can take away in terms of resilience
0: and the power of positivity. Is it hard for you because it's coming from a white shirt and they may put it through a filter where they dismiss the intention? Is it hard for them to see that it's you've struggled, you've been through a lot, it's you as a person in that moment trying to connect with them on a human level? Do you think that gets missed? Because of the uniforms?
1: I certainly think there's an opportunity for it to happen, to be missed, that is. But I have a slogan. It's not mine. I love it in terms of understanding leadership, and that is that hurt people hurt people. So when I sit down with somebody and i having a heart-to-heart with them, I talk to them about my journey a bit. I be vulnerable. I talk to them about some of the lessons that I've learned and some of the avenues that they can choose and go with and you know like we'll be there we'll support you we'll do whatever we can that kind of thing from a workplace but I also talk to them on a human level and I think that's where that emotional regulation piece comes in you know there's lots of times where you know we need to be stoic and we need to not show emotion but sometimes we need to sit down beside another guy and give him a hug Mm because he feels like shit for what's going on or he feels alone I'm sure that there's lots of guys that just cringed when I made that comment. But I think that, you know, we as humans, we have a real need to matter. The essence of of our core is that there has to be some purpose for what we're doing or why we're here. So I think, you know, just sitting down with somebody and saying, hey, you matter, you matter to me and you matter to your family and just bring that forward and talk about the next steps and sometimes the next steps has to be so incremental that they can envision it. They can actually see that next step mm-hmm. versus talk about return to work. Like return to work might be three months down the road. It's not about that. It's about let's talk about what your next step is. We'll get you on the journey to return to work. I can see the end of the pathway. I can see where you're gonna go, but you might not right. be able to
0: why don't you grab a shower and we'll get you some to eat. Yeah, exactly. Why do you think we're embarrassed and ashamed of our choices even if they don't impact or harm anyone other than ourselves?
1: I think we are our own worst critics. There's a self judgment that happens. So if I've set a grounding rod of who I am and then I fall short, nobody else might know about that. And then I assess myself against that measure that I've created. So I think in some aspects, you know, at least for myself, when I've made poor choices, I had mentioned to you that there are some choices that I'm certainly not proud of that I made. I do value the experiences and lessons, but it just doesn't measure up. The person who I want to be, you know, doesn't do those sorts of things. So I fell short that day. So I think there should be, and maybe this is being too self-critical, I'm not sure, but I think if we don't question some of our choices and if we don't feel bad about an outburst or a moment where we did something that doesn't align with who we truly want to be, our authentic self, shouldn't we feel bad about that? Like, I guess I don't know the answer to be honest, but I just feel like essentially that's where the moral compass comes from. Right. You know, if you're off track, you should know you're off track and you should feel bad about the fact you're off track.
0: What I think I've experienced personally, and I've talked to a number of firefighters that deal with this too, is that they speak to themselves in a way that they would never speak to a friend or a loved one. Mm -hmm. That they treat themselves terribly Mm -hmm. internally because that high standard that they're framing it as. Right. Can get you where you need to be. It can get you success, but it can also be damaging. I think it's nuanced on where that line is between the healthy amount of pressure you would put on a friend Mm -hmm. and then give that to yourself. I think it's easy for us to say, well, I have higher standards for myself than I have for everyone else. Personally, I've had to get past that. And there was a quote I read recently. I'm probably going to just completely mess it up now, but (laughs) it talked about shame and guilt. And I believe it was that you can experience the shame. Mm-hmm. but you need to let that go. You can hold on to the guilt, mm-hmm. but you need to let the shame go.
1: Yeah. Brene Brown?
0: was that must be her, yes. She she, she speaks a lot about shame. That's exactly yeah. who it was. So they yeah. can, You can Google it mm-hmm. and get it said a lot more succinctly than I just put it, <laughs> but that's exactly what it was, Brene Brown. Yeah, shame and guilt. So experience a shame, hold on to the guilt. Yeah. So I think you're
1: right. I think there's a line where we say, hey, this is where medium is. This is where I'm going over the line. We often as high achievers or somebody who's trying to do uh, a lot of good things, has high expectations. We're extremists. I guess I've heard a quote that came from a horse guy. He's an extreme middle of the roadist. (laughs) And I was like, what the hell does that mean? Right. (laughs) Right. So he was talking about training horses. So he's extreme in terms of his consistency. You know, he has his guidelines, he has his boundaries, has his rules, but he's middle of the road in terms of listen, if I bump up against the bumper, so what? I've got my guide and I'm I'm fine with that part. I think we have to understand that when we're judging ourselves, it's okay to judge, but there has to be a forgiveness there too. Understanding the transition from, this is Brené Brown again too, right? I am bad or I did something bad. Right. Right? There's something different in that.
0: Yeah, you're schizophrenic or you're a person that's struggling with schizophrenia. Right.
1: So it's, I am going to choose to say I did something bad it's an act the language matters
0: what I really struggle with was the fact that I had only learned that the way I succeed is by treating myself in a certain way now filtering that through what you just said about being an extremist that perhaps we can't retrain ourselves to not be extremists but we can choose what we're extreme about so I'm going to be consistent Mm -hmm. and relentless Mm -hmm. with something (laughs) Be passionate. Like, don't lose your passion. Right. I didn't know that I could still be successful and grow by being good to myself along the way. It had to be harsh. It had to be unmoving.
1: While we're on the topic of thrown out quotes, you've heard you can't pour from an empty cup, right? Yes. Okay. That's why I have a Sunday reflection. You know, all week long, I'm pouring from the cup and I am adding to it. I have daily habits that help me add to it. But it's depleting over a week, right? So when I get to my Sunday reflection and I start to write down in a journal or I start to give thought to that, I'm adding back into that. And I do it passionately. I do it extreme. Like it's an extreme practice for me. The intention is building me back up so that the next day I can go back out and start to give back to people. And so I think if we judge ourselves, going back to the the question about do we judge ourselves too harshly, and I think we can, but I think we need to equally and passionately give back to ourselves and and care for ourselves. What was your rookie experience like? It was awesome. I would go back to that in a heartbeat. (laughs) My recruit class, a group of eight, amazing guys. We had a blast. That's all I'll say about that. I I got a chance to start with uh, a really influential captain. I mean, to be honest with you, this might be the story for most people because, you know, I would say that most company officers are good human beings for the most part. And my particular captain, Guy Burkholder, was just an amazing human being, period, and then also a good captain. And I had the fortune of having a couple of good senior guys at my station to initially, I'll say, filter my rookie enthusiasm and um, help me to sort of frame all of the different things that I thought we could do and fix and whatnot that happened when people first start and they see the fire service. It's a big change. I was an electrician. I was a foreman for uh, a company that we was building the Toyota plant. And, you know, so you're go, 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 right? You've got all these schedules. Then you move into recruit class. And recruit class, again, is go, 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 right? Like every hour is filled, every minute is filled with something. And, you know, if you're not doing that, you're doing dishes or some sort of cleanup or whatever. And then, you know, it's day shift, so it's not much different than the work you were doing before. And then you hit the floor. That's a big culture shock for somebody who's constantly been working on things. And it's not to say that we weren't busy because, you know, there's calls and lots of different things, but it was a different busy.
0: There's an ebb and flow of intensity
1: yeah. And I think the other piece that is there, it's under the control of your station captain. So your day, your pattern is about how they set it, right? So the pace or the, the outline of the day really is controlled by the station captain. And so I was very fortunate to have somebody had a patience because, you know, I'm spinning like a top and, you know, they're going, okay, that's, that's cool. We're going to, Keep guiding you, and nobody really got too rammy with me. And then we did a lot of different things off the job too, like I bought different houses and things. So we worked together on some of those. And and the senior guys were, from my perspective, uh, had a huge amount of respect for you know what they brought. So I had no interest in wanting to drive. Like I want to be in the back of the truck when we go to the fires. And we had some senior guys who would be happy to take rotation or do different things and and help out and. I think one of the moments where i realized how much knowledge there was we had a fire where it was in a roof but it was all tarred and that was burning underneath and so we had to slug away at ripping the roof up all apart right and my work ethic is go 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 right so bunker gear scba go 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 burnout burnout yes The guy who was probably twice my age, I don't know exactly where our numbers were, but he was at least 20 years older than me. Go, 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 go. Just constant work. Like the whole time we were there for four or five hours, he was just plugging away. I couldn't keep up because I was that rabbit. He was a tortoise, you know, the whole thing. But you're kind of like, what the hell? and then you know you get back and you have that conversation and he's like he said we just needed to continue to work at it so he had this intention of going through this process and in his mind we're gonna get there don't kill yourself i didn't have that knowledge or that wisdom (laughs) or the whatever so
0: there was many lessons you know that i learned from those guys looking back to recruit class for a second was there anything even though the department in your training division may have had the best of intentions in the program that they had you go through. Looking back, was there anything that was missed?
1: Um, in terms of things that are missed, and you know, there's no judgment of the training officers or the, the STIs who are providing all kinds of great stuff, through my experiences now and my understanding of, I'll call it polyvagal theory, or understanding how stressors impact the body, and I really believe that we should probably be doing more in terms of breathing and training breathing. We're taught how to don and doff our SCBA. We're taught how to go through emergency procedures, and we drill on that all the time. Through firefighter survival, or I guess it's called fireground survival now, we talk a little bit about skip breathing or things like that. But we really aren't talking about the differences in the way we breathe. Diaphragmatic breathing, or I'll call it just belly breathing because that's a lot easier to say. Obviously, you know, we can control our autonomic nervous system through breath. I think that's an important factor for sure. Certainly when we're in traumatic events and you know wanting to be able to throttle the autonomic nervous system and manage that and then be able to recover and come back to a parasympathetic state at the end. Critical knowledge to have in the first responder firefighters. But adding to that is that those are all great things whether you're wearing an SCBA or not. When you're putting on a finite amount of air and you're going into an IDLH environment, I can't think of a better time to understand the proper techniques of breathing and understanding how to effectively and efficiently breathe down that bottle. We spend no time, and I'll include Kitchener in that, that we don't do that for our recruits currently. We acknowledge that it was a big gap We have brought in a specialist, Dr. Belisa Vronik. She'd be a great guest. She teaches Breathing for Warriors. She does a lot of stuff with um, FDNY and uh, the DEA and a number of other elite agencies, if you will. But We brought her up to do um, that course for our firefighters and for our group. We got a lot of great feedback from it. And um, if I could repeat it budget-wise, I would do it You know, until everybody got that lesson. I would love to send some of our, our people down to become trainers for it. I think it's a piece that, in terms of recruits, fire ground survival, to me, is one of those key things. Before you get on a fire truck, you should know how to care for yourself. You should know self-rescue. Before you even get there, you should know how to breathe. And reading her books and going through her, I'll call it, uh, workshop and all the different Facts that she has listening to her podcast, different ones she's been on. She really identifies that it's around five or six years of age that we stop breathing properly. We are belly breathers by nature, and then whether it's because we start wearing tight-waisted pants, whether it's because you know we're sucking it in, and we're being teased at school, or whatever the rationale is, but somewhere at a young age, anyway, we start to breathe vertically instead of horizontally, and that you know essentially makes us way less efficient and. Just doing her work and her workshops, from my perspective, it's changed drastically my capacity. Whether I'm doing a 2,000-meter row or some other activity, I'm way less gassed. When I'm breathing effectively and efficiently, it's the cardiovascular system running at 100%. I don't actually have to have (laughs) the same training regime as somebody else who's breathing improperly has probably a great
0: VO2. In a controlled environment. In a controlled environment, right. Until they're, as Mike Tyson says, punched in the face. The great benefit of wearing an SCBA is you can hear yourself breathe. Mm-hmm. You have that other prompt, that mm-hmm. stimuli of you can listen to the pace. Yeah, true. I also have a thought on the end of, say, NFPA and standards, they change the packs. They have to have a heads-up display now, mm-hmm. and they have to go off at 33% um, as opposed to 25 All these practical product mm-hmm. material changes are being made mm-hmm. yet you're right we're not taught how to to manage the air or even we're not taught about kind of building them in how deep am i in i think well i've got a half a tank well, what does that mean what does that mean at this pace of breathing mm-hmm. what are we going to encounter on the way back out there's so many factors that would go into how hard you're going to breathe and then that's only math about how much the air is going to last so yeah you're right there's next to no discussion on that when we're trained about the pack. You're just taught about the tool. I mean, I think you highlight some of the
1: major flaws in the fire service is that we continuously improve and change our equipment. We upgrade, upgrade, upgrade constantly. Our standards change. We want the latest, the greatest, the best. And thank God we are doing that because I think it's important that we have great PPE. I think it's important that we have excellent equipment. When did we upgrade the firefighter? In terms of evolving, like when did we actually sit back and say, we need to work on X skill or Y skill, or we need to work on this behavior or that behavior.
0: I don't think we do that well. Well, cause the LODD occurs, the niatropore comes mm-hmm. out. It has to do with SCBA and mm-hmm. running out of air mm-hmm. and where they start is we'll change the pack. Mm-hmm. Now that we're just talking about this seems short-sighted, change the user and the pack change uh, both. Yeah. But You change one, that doesn't change how the person's using it. Right. And I think, you know, they do look at
1: decision-making. They do look at different choices that are made. If anybody has gone through and read the NIOSH reports, there's a driver, right? There's a reason, a motivation. You know, we change for one of two reasons, inspiration or desperation. And so I would really like us as an organization, as a fire service, to be inspired to change. The reality is that we usually wait for the NIOSH report to come in, and that's through desperation. We say, oh, we don't want that death to be in vain. We want to make sure we honor them. We've got to change something. And the easiest thing to change is a standard or equipment, right? So, hey, we're going to change this, and we're going to make it better.
0: And it's tangible.
1: Yeah, it's tangible. It's measurable. We can say, hey, we now meet this standard. But I don't think we do a very good job, I and mean, I think some departments do it better than others, but to help the firefighter evolve, Like I look at us as occupational athletes or tactical athletes or whatever you want to put in front of it. But this is an athletic profession. We're going out there to do some sort of physical performance. We have to have good education on what is going to be required of you, as you mentioned earlier, expectations, right? But we also have to have all of the pieces of what it takes to meet that expectation. And so some of it is equipment, clearly. Some of it might be drilling, so we just become more efficient. You know, and I think some departments do that really, really well. And I think some of it is about we have to look at how we do things. That's tough. Like tradition is huge in our culture. So when you say this is the way we've always done it, you know, we get that all the time. But that's not necessarily meaning that in today's world, that might have been a totally valid point back in the day or a valid reason for doing something back in the day. But as the whole society and everything changes, we need to be reviewing these and saying, okay, are we still doing things the way we should be doing them
0: well this is where marketing serves corporations and doesn't serve the people where you think oh if i just wear those shoes that that person wears Mm -hmm. i'll be awesome yeah (laughs) whereas that person could probably wear sandals and crush you
1: yeah it doesn't matter if i wear nikes i can't dunk (laughs) right right you're not going to get the benefit of it (laughs) no
0: and i think when you're in sports to keep going with that you really do learn that I'll use mountain biking as an example. Okay. A $10,000 mountain bike and mm-hmm. give it to five different people and one person that's gone through progressing in all their skills will get the full benefit of that bike. Right. But most people won't be able to tell the difference. Yeah, so tackling it from both ways.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You've had some health issues to face during firefighting. When did they come on and how did you notice them?
1: We had a fairly substantial it was an entire city block. It was part of a factory that was in one of our downtown core. It was called panel veneer. They made veneered paneling. Pretty substantial fire, total loss. It got ripping really fast. So I was at that fire. I was at the end of the stick for a lot of hours, you know, going through lots of bottles, you know, and then eventually no bottles. at the And, you know, you come back, you do your decon, you do whatever, and then months and months, and sometimes years and decades go by before you might uh, find any kind of consequences from that. But I started to get lesions and i call them lesions now because at the time i was like oh i have ringworm i live on a farm it's normal i'll just you know put my actin on it and we'll we'll get rid of it continued with that process because you know like anybody i'm good at denial so i just continued to do that for a few months and i would say that without my wife i probably would have continued with that path until you know. Flesh eating disease took over, <laughs> um, but she uh, recognized some other changes that were going on. I'm a person who wakes up at 5:30 every morning, just something that's over the years had been that way. And I was starting to sleep until eight, like solid rock sleeping. And for her that threw flags, she was like, something's not right. So she uh, made an appointment. I went and had some discussions and at first we didn't really know what was going on long story short. Uh, one of my other visits, there was a uh, visiting dermatological oncologist or something like that from Brazil. And he came in and saw the lesions and right away said, "Oh, huh, it's CTCL, which is cutaneous T cell lymphoma. You know, obviously, by looking at it, it's probably not the best bedside manner because he can't make that diagnosis visually. you don't have to send it away. So my family doctor wasn't overly impressed. With that, she made some apologies to me. We did do a biopsy. Um, It came back inconclusive. So we went through this back and forth. What is it? What's going on? I am of the mindset of survivor, right? So at no point did I ever go, oh, my God. They used the C word. Uh, Cancer, just in case. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So my mindset was like, well, let's just, you know, whatever the next step is, I'm just going to go, you know, we'll deal with this. My wife, though... She hid it from me very well, but she you know, certainly struggled um, because for her the what ifs were really scary, right? And she knows you know the fire service is plagued with cancer risks. We had an appointment made for some sort of uh, intervention, and it was about six or seven months away, which to me didn't make any sense. If we we're going to catch it early, why would we wait so long? But that's our system, and we we're still kind of waiting on doing a second biopsy and kind of getting more conclusive evidence. In the meantime. Uh, my wife, again, made an appointment to go to a naturopath who, who practiced in Germany where they work hand-in-hand with MDs on oncology. And so she had a really good uh, protocol. And by the time I got to my dermatological oncologist from Canada, in uh, seven months later, I had no lesions to show. Everything had kind of gone away. Back and forth, we went with, it is this, it isn't that. Long story short is that there's been no diagnosis because in order to get a diagnosis, I have to stop living my lifestyle the way I do. So I quit drinking. I eat uh, primarily low carb, borderline keto. I do intermittent fasting. I meditate. I do yoga. I do like I changed my life drastically as part of the protocol. I joke around. I do shrooms, but not the kind of shrooms you like. You know, so <laughs> chaga and different things. Yeah, but they're great. Know, yeah. Yeah. So I drastically changed my life back then. And at the time, it was a major overhaul, right? It took a lot to to do that, but I was highly motivated. Back to the desperation. No problem with willpower because I'm highly motivated. You know, you fast forward that as they go through three years, they say, we have to have a lesion to test. So go off the diet then if you think that's controlling it. So I go off a couple of times and they start to come back and I'm like, what am I doing? Wow. Why not just live my life this way and I don't have lesions? Watch and listen to your body. Yeah. So lesion free, I've been for about 10 years. Maybe not 10, because it comes and goes. I do get them on occasion when I'm vacationing and, you know, my diet isn't as tight. But I can easily recover back from it. I think those lessons, though, taking them back to the fire service and saying, hey, guys, we can probably change our lifestyles and really impact our overall wellness.
0: Is this what sort of steered you towards health and safety and peer support?
1: I was doing them beforehand. Okay. Um, So I'd been in health and safety for a lot of years. Uh, I was actually at the health and safety conference with the OPFFA when I got the news on the uh, inconclusive results and understanding that there were two that thought it was and one that didn't, so in terms of pathology. but So I've been doing that for a lot of years. It wasn't really what steered me there, but certainly my passion for driving a wellness program within our department and adjusting it to meet maybe these new needs. So looking at you know medical surveillance from a different standpoint and saying let's look at some of our Inflammatory markers. So understanding that I do a number of tests, not on a regular basis anymore, but originally it was, that measure you know C-reactive protein or erythrocyte sedimentation rate for what kind of inflammation do you have in your body? Is it high? If so, why? And then you as a an informed firefighter would you know I said, hey, listen, you've got high markers. You know, you have high heavy metals. You have this. You have that. You can go and take that to your family doctor and have a conversation about, here's my results. And that gives you more awareness for you, but it also gives you leverage to actually get some of the testing done that most doctors won't do in Ontario because of age restrictions, you know, with the OHIP system. So,
0: yeah, they want to do less and less now. Yeah, I just heard that they're going to try and reduce even more. You mentioned Four Doctors Theory, Paul Check. So,
1: that's a good segue. Paul Check is uh, a unique character. When I first started to read about him and, and read, read his book and started to learn about him. He was mostly in what I'd call physiology. And he had some somatic things in terms of the breathing, body breathing or different aspects from that. But he has four doctors and so he, one doctor is Dr. Diet. You have to have your nutrition right. And your nutrition needs and my nutrition needs might be different, but we have to make sure that we're getting the diet right for each individual. He has uh, Dr. Movement, so we need to functionally move properly throughout the day, every day. One of the firefighters just recently, we were chatting and he's like, hey, the motion is the lotion. I was <laughs> like, Yeah, that's right. I've been sitting at a desk too long because I'm not as movable at this moment. Dr. Quiet is uh, his third one. And he talks about the fact that whether that be sleep or that be re- recovery or that be meditation or something of that aspect, we need to actually intentionally recover. You have to put downtime into your schedule. You have to actually properly do that. And then uh, the last one he calls Dr. Happy. So of course, if you float those four out there for most people, they'd be like, you yeah, know, that kind of sounds hokey. Happiness though, it's about meaning. It's about, you know, having purpose. So that's the part where we've missed a lot in the fire service. It's inherent in our job, right? If you come into the job, you know, you've got that internal drive. We need to recognize and acknowledge it and celebrate it So that you stay connected to your purpose and you can celebrate yourself and appreciate what you're doing out there for the community. So we've added those four pillars. We call them something slightly different, but we have nutrition, you know, we have movement, we have a rehab recovery section, and
0: then we have purpose and meaning and all of those sorts of things. So those are the four doctors. What made you want to become an officer and when did you know you were ready for it?
1: Uh, Well, we talked earlier about imposter syndrome, so I don't honestly know that I thought I was ready for it. I don't know what makes me think that You know, when we're kind of going through that process, whether it's humble, because I think leaders need to maintain that. And that's a value that I really aspire to have or to maintain. That's my intention. I want to be humble, so I think it came from that. But the decision to become a captain partly came from discussions that I was having at home with my wife and... Changes that I wanted to start to make. Like, I think my initial start with Captain Burkholder, that environment was so amazing. I wanted to try and recreate that. And not to say that, you know, I was ever in a bad, like, I had good officers all the way through, great group of roommates all the way through. So I don't think that there was ever a time where I was like, oh my God, I got to get out of this situation. It was never that. But I thought, you know, wow, how awesome that the guy created this great atmosphere for me and for our team. I'd like to have that opportunity to do that. So that was sort of the driving factor is that, you know, I think I could do it. I think I could offer that, but I don't know for sure. And so that kind of leads to, I don't know if I was ever ready. And same thing when you know, when you go through for the assistant platoon chief's position, again, I have no idea whether I'm ready or not, but I am somebody who likes to test myself. I'm somebody who likes to challenge. That's where it's a matter of those decisions where it's like, I think I can make that jump. But it's
0: more of an educated decision than it is the dirt bike. Now, yeah. yeah. like <laughs> now,
1: I mean, and even the dirt bike one now, I've got a lot more uh, knowledge and experience, so I can kind of guess at what gear I got to be in when, if I'm going to hit it, right? <laughs>
0: understand some physics, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What was your involvement in the union side of things? What made you want to be involved deeper in the goings-on of the membership?
1: Originally, I was in the health and safety side. That driver came out of the desire to basically better equipment. Let's do some research on this. We were also implementing a trench rescue program, and so we were doing a lot of research on that, and so I got involved from that aspect. As my involvement there my experience in that kind of thing, I realized that collaboration between labor and management is critical. If we have people on either side who are set in their ways or are, I don't want to call them difficult, both sides most times have good intentions on on their rationale. But maybe the visions aren't aligned? Visions might not be aligned or even Somebody comes up with a good idea and sometimes because it's a specific person's idea, they get stuck around who brings it forward rather than the fact that, holy crap, that's a good idea. Don't shoot the messenger. Yeah, exactly. So I noticed that happening a lot. I became a director to sort of get my feet wet and see if what I was seeing through the health and safety was everywhere, through other negotiations, through other grievances. I would say that it was pretty consistent in terms of the roadblocks or sort of the challenges that were there. And so my interest was to try and make a a dent in the relationship and say I get kind of where you guys are coming from and I think you know together we can probably deal with those issues. What do you think about trying it in a different way? The president that we currently have was the president when I did the VP move. A genuinely nice guy, he thinks things through and has the best intentions. So I think if you have that trust built between labor and management, your ability to achieve things is unbelievable. Like you can move the needle so much faster and so much farther than if you're constantly at odds. There's a book called The Speed of Trust, and I really think that with poor labor relations, you spend time constantly spinning your wheels on issues, and you don't get anywhere. To be honest with you, there's a negative side to having good labor relations that you have to be cautious not to necessarily fall into. And if I'm being frank, I've done it. I like have made the mistakes. I know I've got great labor relationship you know, and, and we're going to move something forward. So we start to move it forward. And I use the analogy of, you know, if you're constantly looking in the back seat, keeping track of the kids, you're not paying attention to what's going out front. But if you've got great relations and everything's good, you're going to look out the front window constantly. But if you're constantly looking out front, you have no relationship with the floor. So if you're driving, oh my God, we're making so much progress. We got all these different programs going. We're doing all this stuff. You lose that connection to the floor. And so thankfully, I have a group of men and women who, when they're upset, they feel like they can come to me and say, where have you been? Do you see what's happening here? This is off the rails. And I just recently had that tune up. Honestly, I couldn't be more grateful for that open and honest dialogue because together we'll get to where we got to go. But if I'm way out front, that analogy of the leader, like you're not leading anybody, you know, there's nobody behind you. Right. <laughs> so I, yeah, I really, uh, from my perspective, having the experience in the labor side gave me so much more understanding. I know the collective agreement inside note. We've had good success in negotiating different aspects. You know, when we do have struggles, and we do have issues that we got to deal with that are challenging, whether it be disciplinary or you know, different grievances or return to work things or whatever that kind of comes up, we are able to really work through them in quite creative fashion. And I think part of it is we know what we're working on and that is for a better environment or a better outcome for the individual or, or safer. We're never looking at it as a you said, or I said, or, you know, back and at, forth at each other. We focus on the issue and what's the best thing for the issue. We're both on the same page with where we want to go. We want to improve that, right? So it's... It's
0: been really rewarding from that perspective. And what spurned your transition up to management?
1: Probably the same thing that made me move each time. I felt like I had something to offer. I felt like there was a bunch of different pieces that we could kind of put into play that would make firefighters' lives safer, communities safer, There was a number of things that we could implement that were no cost. It's just we need to change kind of how we do things or rejig things. And we had a changeover of management, essentially entire top left. Some of them retired and uh, one moved on to another department. And so we got a new chief. When the new chief came in, he sat with us and had some conversations and he's doing his environmental scan and working through SWOT analysis and all of those models. And we talked a lot about the different opportunities that, that were there, some of the threats. What, what do we need to be really focused on right now? You need, cause you need to fix this right away. And then what are some of the low hanging fruit that you can you know, empower action and make moves for people? And he threw it at me, he goes, do you want to do that? You can apply to deputy and you can make those changes. It's funny cause at the time I was reading a book called Ego is the Enemy. And uh, I really struggled with, am I making this decision out of ego? I really can't say that I was comfortable making the leap from the union, like from the family that, you know, like we talked earlier, there's 300,000 members in the IFF. So for me to kind of leave that and not be seen as one of them anymore, that was my identity. You know, as much as I tried to not have that, I truly focused on having friendships outside the job and keeping a balance. And to this day, I still miss the kitchen table. I still miss the, the riding on the trucks. I still miss you know doing a bunch of the different things that we did. But for me, I, I guess I had to kind of either put up or shut up. Here's an opportunity to go and actually make the changes and do some of the things that I think we can do. Treat people differently. Revamp our return to work. Look at people as human beings first. A number of different things that we were able to do with essentially with no extra dollars or stay with what I was doing. And hope that somebody else was doing that sort of thing. So I took the leap.
0: (laughs) So with every intention of keeping a circle of friends that you had, it obviously does change. And some of it is just proximity Mm -hmm. and consistency of seeing these people all the time. And some change for other reasons. So did you see your circle of friends change? And how was that as an experience for you?
1: The biggest change that I noticed was when I stopped drinking, actually. When I did my health change, the social aspect on the job didn't really change, and even now, certainly I don't see the gang on the floors often. Um, I try to get around and do station visits and whatnot, but it still isn't obviously like it was before. But off the job, somewhat was adjusted due to you know my my lifestyle change and my need to to adjust my eating and my intake. And then I think the other aspect that changed and not to drag 24 hour shift into the conversation but we weren't doing the same things that we used to do we still went out for breakfast on occasion at the end of shift but we weren't doing you know after our block of days you know it was almost a given that we would always go out you know somewhere and do something the last piece of that is when i moved into the captain role I would do stuff with the guys if it was, you know, working on a deck or go do different things with them, that aspect, but I didn't do the socializing in the evening. Uh, Yeah. There's potential for debauchery. Yeah. So, and to be honest with you, there's no judgment. And from my end, I just felt that as a leader, I had to sort of walk the walk and talk the talk, right? I couldn't go out and let loose. And then, you know, two days later be back in charge and say, hey guys, I need you to do this or do that, right? Mm -hmm. Because- So there was an, I don't want to call it an image, but I, I had in my mind, I had a responsibility, but I also had that
0: ethos of who I wanted to be, and I had to be true to that. So, Do we value the role of the senior firefighter as much as we used to? Well, I do.
1: To, hmm, I'm not sure that the senior firefighter values themselves as much as they used to. And the reason that I say that is that the senior firefighter, when I, and it's not that long ago, like I, I'm on 20 years, so it's not like I'm, you know, some old crusty guy, but they tuned you in. Like when you stepped out of line, they tuned you in. And I'm not necessarily in a bad way. Like sometimes it was just out of, uh, you know, it would just be a one-liner that would, you know, you kind of go, Ooh, oh, that's done. I don't see that. And I think, you know, possibly some of that is, has to do with, you know, our environments and, you know, just trying to create a more inclusive and supportive environment. So, you know, the senior guy would have to be more. um, Tactful. Tactful. Yeah. And I would say if your intention is there, like you actually, you know, your intention is pure. You're going to actually want to help this person versus, you know, I just, I'm pissed off. It comes through. So even if they come through with the wrong word, but their intentions there, I think that the firefighter is going to pick up on that. But if your intention is just to be an asshole, then clearly that's going to come through too.
0: Yeah. I noticed that as a training officer, that if you're belligerent all the time, it gets dismissed. But if you're solid yeah, and then once in a while something happens and you're belligerent, right. it stands out. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, and because they know what you're passionate about, right? Mm-hmm. And you're walking the walk and you can do it. You know, and that's the part that I think the senior firefighter role, it might be a, like coming at it on both ends. I valued it a lot when I was on the floor first as a rookie and then maybe not as much in, you know, that five to 10 year gap, but then as an officer, holy crap, that's your go-to. That's the person who you rely on to help you with some of the stuff that you're doing Mm -hmm. or that, you know, in the station or whatever. And then even more so now as a deputy, I really want them to be the informal leaders, you know, to create that positivity. Those are the guys who I, you know, now that when they come to me and go, why did you do that? And then they you kind of look at them and you start to rationalize it, and they, it's like, okay, never mind, I'll make that change.
0: <laughs> like socially and culturally, then as a service, do we do ourselves and others a disservice by seeing promoting and moving up as the only way to show your value and your worth?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I'm going to put something out there that I think won't be overly popular. I truly believe in recognizing people for their performance and for their efforts. Now that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be monetarily. There can be lots of different ways that we can do that. When we made the switch, and a lot of departments are already there uh, in terms of seniority means everything. The amount of hours you have in the seat means something, but it doesn't mean everything. If you have the hours in the seat and you have the passion, and you have the um, connection to share that information and willingness, yeah, we should reward that with something. To me, that's where we kind of missed the boat on both sides, Like whether it be labor or management, when we transitioned to the 369. We probably should have put some pieces around that to say, we want to recognize the efforts, the passion, and the return that you're giving back And so we're going to put some parameters around that so that you can do that, right? And we'll get you there.
0: And for those that that wouldn't recognize what that is, it would be a 3% raise, 6% bump, and a 9% bump based on your years of experience.
1: Right. So just by the years you have on the job, there is a factor to that. Like you certainly do no more at eight years or 10 years on the job versus one or two. Just the more calls you run, the the more uh, you start to understand the bigger picture. So I think there's a factor there, but I think we probably should have tied it to a couple of other things. And I think that would have benefited the firefighter as well. It would have gave them that next step. It would have kept them with an intention to grow. One of the things that plagues us a little bit is stagnation. And we get into certain habits and complacencies, which we know can cause catastrophic failures in the fire service. That's one part. The other side of that, is the unfortunate piece that we don't have a lot of lateral moves i think if we were to work at creating more opportunities for lateral moves that doesn't necessarily mean that you got paid more but that you got to experience more and you got to have some flexibility in your shift or flexibility in your work environment your work day whatever that is I look at the other services. The police service has quite a bit of lateral movement opportunity. And so I think that's one area that maybe, you know, they have over fire service that we could look at. And and, and I don't honestly know the answer in terms of how we would build that just yet. But I think that's
0: something, you know, in my mind that there's something there that we could probably find. Everyone could benefit from. Right. You became involved in a couple of interesting projects post 9-11.
1: Yeah. Who doesn't love dogs? So I've loved dogs my whole life. But after 9-11, the fire service had a unique perspective on it and how it might have impacted us. I really wanted to try and make a difference in and prepare us locally. Uh, I embarked on a FEMA canine search program. We did a five-year pilot in Kitchener. We partnered with a number of agencies. Al Thomas was uh, running the Toronto HUSAR for the fire service, um, networked with him, did a number of their operational days. Essentially ended up with uh, one FEMA certified dog. We went down to Pennsylvania and did the testing, came back, the program evolved to having a second dog that did uh, cadaver search and accelerant detection. So I did that for five years, and uh, it was extremely rewarding, not to be disrespectful to any humans, But I learned a ton about leadership when you don't have the English language to use and you're trying to convince another animal to do something and how to motivate and how to drive and how to reward. For me, understanding the difference between classical conditioning and operant conditioning really stood out. I definitely want to create operant firefighters rather than classical conditioned firefighters. But that's a huge obstacle. We know that if you look at Uh, Pavlov's dogs ring the bell, right? Well, if you look at the fire station, we get the tones go off, we respond. So for myself, even 20 years, I've been operating under Pavlov's theory, which is classical conditioning. We need to actually step back from that, look at that and say, okay, how do I change over to BF Skinner's model of operant conditioning? There was tons of really cool things. Like I did lots of searches, but the real takeaway from that
0: experience was what those dogs taught me. So you embarked years ago on an ambitious reading journey. Were you an avid reader before that and what sparked that idea and (laughs) talk to me about it? So you know how we talked earlier,
1: like, are you ashamed of any of those decisions? So this decision actually worked out to be in in my favor and I'm proud of the outcomes, but not necessarily my why for starting. Uh, I was a, a rookie doing a trade shift with another station and there was a gentleman there who was an author. He was a firefighter, and he was also an author. He would written, I think, one or two books. or was working on a second book. And I, you know, flippant comments about reading or kind of a, you know, smart-ass comments at the kitchen table. And he very pointedly asked me, you know, what you don't read. And I said, no. And he goes, can you read? And, of course, I was like, yeah, I can read, you know. And he said, like, what's the difference? Right? And just, you know, kind of jabbing those knives. And then so the rest of that shift, we had some deeper conversations, I was in my first year. So he's like, you got 30 years to go. You better figure out what you're going to do with your time, how you're going to grow and how you're going to develop. Basically kind of put it out there that I should read. I think he challenged me to a book a month. And then my cockiness went back at him. I can do a book a week. So we, he challenged me for a year to do the book a week. I gave up that, actually. I'm no quitter, so I'm going to carry on with <laughs> with that process. And so that was sort of the beginnings of it. And, you know, there's been gaps in terms of the 20 years. Like, I think, and certainly it's more seasonal in the last 10 years because in the summertime, you know, I'm on a tractor. More often, I'm doing different things on the farm. I can get into my audiobooks and 25 hours on a tractor in a week. I can go through three or four books. Or podcasts. Or podcasts. And to be honest (laughs) with you, one of the things that I started to notice is that if I listen to or read a book in a week, I can retain a good portion of it and I can put it into use and start to utilize the things. And there's lots of stuff that I've read that I'm like, it doesn't resonate with me. I'm going to let it go. But if I started reading more than that in a week, it started to blend. And so I uh, did switch over and went to podcasts on the health side of things or fire side of things and continue with my book a week rather than get into too many different books so what started out originally as sort of a cocky challenge uh, and there was certainly a couple years where maybe I wasn't doing all of that but I still tried to read and audiobooks weren't really that popular back you know it was like 98 when I started this and so there was a number of years where you go through and you're reading the books and then it get to the point where I started to realize that listen I don't have a degree I don't have a PhD I don't have MBA I don't mean to take away anything from anybody who has that If you did your MBA 10 years ago, I would challenge actually reading a book a week and continuing your education constantly, more consistently, you might actually be sharper in certain areas than, you know, somebody who hasn't done that has only focused on their particular job for those 10 years since they got their MBA. So I think there's a certain part of me that sort of switched over to, I want to make up for not having that degree. So I have an analogy about my role in management, and that's that I have to speak a number of different languages. I have to speak firefighter. I have to speak city hall. I have to speak some political aspects. I might have to speak um, technical, NFPA jargon. I also have some spinoffs. I speak yogi and I speak farmer. And from my perspective, those give me the ability to sort of translate what we all mean and have effective conversations. I couldn't do that at city hall or with politicians if I didn't read. Maybe if I had the MBA, I could, right? I could talk models and different things, but the value that I have learned from all of this is that I can start to have that dialogue. And when something comes up that's, you know, it's like, hmm, that's a statement or that's a phrase or that's a model I haven't read on or haven't heard about, I can go to a a library, I can go to audible.com and I can pull up the great courses the most interesting thing is all the harvard lectures that you want on transformational change and all those things they're all there right so i've listened to the 25 hour lectures that all the great professors and you know and certainly there are times when i've got google next to me while i'm doing it because i'm translating but you you get there right it's just taking those steps so i think that journey for me started out in kind of a funny way it's a bit of a challenge it slowly grew And then I started to become very appreciative of it and realizing what I'm learning, what I'm taking away from this has allowed me to do so many different things in my
0: life. Let's finish off on your most powerful impact by a book. It's
1: such a difficult thing to pin down to one book because there's categories of books, right? So there's certain topics that get covered over and over and over, but they might get covered in just a different way that actually resonates with you better. One of the books that sort of hit home was a book called Leadership and Self-Deception. It's by Arbinger Institute. They have a couple of other books. The sister book too is called Anatomy of Peace. Leadership and Self-Deception is based around the workplace and Anatomy of Peace is around home life. The concepts are exactly the same though. And it's really about your mindset and having an outward mindset. You can talk about servant leadership, you can talk about a number of different things, but ultimately we make a lot of choices every day. One of the examples they use in the book is driving home, you need fuel. It's like, oh, I probably should go do that. But you betray that thought, and you choose to go home, and so somebody else can do it. Internally, we have that moral compass that constantly tells us the right thing to do. And yet, a lot of times, we'll deceive that. One of the things that I took away from that book is to how to be authentic, is to actually take that voice in your head and that moral compass and honor it. So when that comes forward, whatever it is, if you're practiced in constantly listening to that inner critic or that moral compass, you will make those decisions much more easily and feel much better about them more frequently. That isn't to say that I get it right every time. But that's why I ask people on the outside, right? Keep an eye on me, man. Like, I don't know if I'm doing this right. But I think that book for me really hit home. Good leadership starts with self-awareness and emotional regulation. And that book really explained it in a good way.
0: Well, I appreciate the conversation today.
1: Thank you. It's been awesome. It felt like I was talking a lot.
0: <laughs> well, it, it is your episode, so it kind of has to be that way. <laughs> 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 All right, well, let's grab some food and a the coffee then. Okay.